Welcome to the Get Emergent podcast. Today is the first segment of a new series called Driving Leadership, which is aimed at demystifying leadership by having real conversations with leaders. You'll witness conversations with leaders from all walks of life and learn about what drives them to lead, their development stories, and about some current challenges they are facing. I'm Bill Berthel, and joining me today is Dr. James Rowling. Welcome, James. Bill, thanks for having me and for welcoming me to this podcast. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited about our conversation today. Uh, let me share just a little bit about uh, you as a leader with our listeners so I can take an attempt at framing this for them. Sure. Uh, you know, previously an elementary school teacher, but since the fall of 2007, a dual professor of arts education and teaching and leadership, serving as coordinator of Syracuse University's art education programs which are based in the College of Visual and Performing Arts and School of Education. Right. You've authored several books on creativity and leadership, and since 2017, you've been the chair of arts education at SU? Well, I've been the chair of arts education since 2007, oh. uh, but I've been working since, say, about 2018 as the director of equity, inclusion, and diversity for the College of Visual and Performing Arts. Yes, yes, we've talked about it. And you're also currently the president-elect for the National Art Education Association. Correct. And, and I know I'm missing other roles here, James. There's so much you're doing. I have to ask you, man, when do you sleep? Uh, when, when and how do you fit all these leadership roles in your life? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, I sometimes uh, use an analogy. Back when I was an elementary school teacher, I actually taught myself how to juggle. And it's something that I did partly because it was um, – a cool thing for the kids to watch, but also there was a process to it. Uh, so for me, it's a matter of juggling and keeping all the balls in the air. And every once in a while, there's a little mishap, but then you pick the balls back up and you keep on going. You're doing some amazing and important work. And I, um, I know in our conversation today, we'll, we'll get to some of that for our listeners. I want your thoughts on this idea of defining leadership. At Emergent, we found that defining leadership is necessary, but it can also be potentially a limiting exercise because the role of leader is such a diverse and rich role. We know our listeners want authentic leadership stories. So please, James, take us on your leadership path. Talk about your leadership story. Well, for me, if I was going to start on my personal leadership story, because everybody, I actually teach a course in creative leadership at Syracuse University. I'm doing so right now. As a matter of fact, creative uh, leadership. Yes. Creative leadership. For me, it stems from the fact that at least my leadership story stems from the fact that I'm an eldest sibling. So leadership always sort of came along with the territory of watching out for my, for my brothers and sister. But, you know, it became clear because of my personality traits, which include being very meticulous and being very observant and paying attention to the details that other mm -hmm. uh, people sometimes overlook. Yes. Um, that I had a natural bent, a natural trait for doing things and getting it done well and getting it done. And if, if no one else was going to step up to do it, I was willing to do so. There's a certain sacrificial nature to leadership. I think about it in terms of a framework of servant leadership, because I tend to have always stepped in not because I like being in the spotlight, because I don't. <laughs> but that's not my natural bent, but because it needed to be done. And I sometimes look at leadership as helping others to do collectively or as a group what we could not do as individuals, you know, and, and just sort of helping to, to lead that effort. So for me, I 
I think I had my first official leadership role at an institution when I was uh, as an undergrad leading uh, the African-American Student Society at uh, my institution. Why? Because a lot of the students there were struggling with the fact that there were very few of us at the institution, which was the Cooper Union in New York City, where I studied first architecture and then eventually got my bachelor's degree in visual art. But it's a, it was a school where we, there was definitely a need to increase the presence of faculty of color at the institution and also the presence of students of color, largely because that was part of the legacy of the institution. So that was really one of my first times stepping into that, that kind of role. But then after that, I found myself in employment situations where I was the head of this or the director of that, and I can go into that, but I just wanted to sort of say that's where I started. Absolutely. would love to revisit something you just said, and I think it really relates to uh, one of the books you authored entitled Swarm Intelligence, that idea of working together collectively. Expand on that. That seems really important to you. Yes. Um, so the book you're referring to, I published in 2013. And I was already interested in talking more about leadership and leadership principles. And it's a, it's a yes. frankly, it's a leadership book, but it's based on this idea of looking at creativity differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's a mythology to be battled with that there are some who are creative or few who are artists and most of the rest of us are not. That's the myth that's out there that, right. that, that there, there is a, a creative few and the rest are bystanders or spectators. Mm. And my argument has long been that as social creatures, as you know, human beings are social creatures, as social animals, we can learn a lot by the other social animals in, in our habitats um, in terms of how leadership actually works and starts off as a social origin. In other words, it's not like my mm. creativity is locked in my own head and has nothing to do with my interactions with anyone else. But actually, it's just like language, where yes. our language, my English speaking ability, stems from the fact that I was surrounded by English speakers. And the same can be said for any language. You, right. you learn from those who are around you. And then once you have taken in what by osmosis or by repetition or by mimicry, what others have done, then you take ownership over it. And, then, and you develop sentences that have been spoken that you speak that no one has ever spoken before, right? So in other words, it's not like I'm saying that we're all drones. I'm saying that, that we learn by behaving together first, and yes. then we behave by ourselves and then make contributions, which then go back to the social environment that we're connected with and, and relating with. And it goes back and forth. It's systemic as opposed to being some sort of individual trait. So that's the, that's the nature of the idea of swarm intelligence. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, um, swarm herds, schools, teams, right? Teams. So exactly. much work as leaders in leading teams. Uh, I love the, the natural origin of your focus there. What's been your key in leading teams? Well, I would say that part of it is, is the understanding that just because I'm in a leadership role now doesn't mean that I'm always supposed to be in the leadership role. Mm. So one of the first things you notice when you think about a flock of birds wheeling about in space or in, in flight um, is that at, at some point or another, every bird rotes, rotates into leadership. And so for me, leadership is a, is a mentoring role. It's allow, uh, uh, and it's one where you 
allow for others to rotate into the lead and you allow yourself to follow and others to lead. Uh, and you, you have to have a willingness to step back as is necessary. There's a natural law of succession that takes place in any swarm of activity and that allows you to chase after those who are directly in front of you. In other words, I have my mentors who I followed after. And now that I'm in the front ranks, others are right behind me and are, and are, are perfectly capable of growing into their leadership roles as well. And ultimately, that notion is parallel to what happens in the development of any culture or any civilization. There's the exchanges that take place where, where at different points, different individuals or members rotate in the lead, add their contributions, and, and we move in slightly different directions. So that's one of the first principles that I bring to any kind of leadership role. I'm always looking to sort of see who, over my shoulder who's coming up, um, mm -hmm. not because I'm competing with them, but because that's a necessity for growth. You know, that diversity of leadership is necessary for growth for the whole organization. I love it. Yeah, thank you. That's um, your work in diversity and inclusion has always been important and mm -hmm. perhaps more recently truly underscored by the social racial, national tensions and challenges we're all facing. In past conversations, you've shared with me that uh, achieving greater diversity in our fields is a significant challenge you face as a leader. You shared that this challenge has actually led to establishing the National Arts Education, let me get this right, National Arts Education Association Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Commission. Yes, exactly. And you're chairing that, as you shared earlier. Yes. Yes. Talk to the, those challenges um, in, in diversity and inclusion and what you're doing in a leadership role to meet and face those challenges. Yes. So uh, I think first the context to this is that um, I'm the president-elect of the National Art Education Association. Yes. Uh, and that association is a collective. In other words, it has um, 50 different state organizations that are, mm -hmm. you know, the Massachusetts Art Education Association or or the uh, New York State Art Teacher Association. So in other words, every state has, has its own organization. And this is the umbrella organization that helps to take care of professional development for all the different member organizations that are state, um, uh, uh, local. So, and I've probably been involved in it since um, uh, just before I finished my doctoral studies in 2003. And I've had different roles in it as director of the higher ed division. I've been the the senior editor for the uh, for Art Education Journal, which is uh, once again a practitioner journal where folks get a chance to share their best practices in classrooms or museums or as teaching artists and talk about how we teach creativity from our different job categories. And now, I uh, most recently, I've been elected uh, to be the next president uh, starting in next March. Congratulations. Um, yeah, and so there have been uh, a lot of roles that I have to undertake as the president-elect, and one of those has been the chair of this new commission, which was born out of need, it was born out of need in a couple of different angles. One, as is often the case, the, the underrepresentation of persons of color within the arts fields, whether it be in museums or as art teachers. If you ask anybody when they had their first, say, uh, black male art teacher, many people say they never had one when they were in elementary school. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the point is that, but, and yet and still, elementary schools, public schools, if you look at who's sitting in the seats, you know, over 50% of students in public school education are students of color. Mm -hmm. So they're not seeing themselves represented in front of the classroom. Right. How do you 
create avenues that change that dynamic or create a sea change within our fields. That's a part of the reason why the commission was started. And in other words, it was something that has been, we've been ramping up to doing preparatory work over the past few years um, with the effort to sort of like examine what the histories are within our field, within our association, what are the best recommendations for making sure work takes place, which is structural and systemic and not just superficial in terms of creating those changes that are necessary within our fields, what kind of metrics are necessary in order to make sure they're making progress in terms of those goals, those recommendations. Mm -hmm. And so for the moment, I'm the chair of the commission and we've got a wonderful roster of, of about 11 commissioners from around the nation who applied and made the argument as, as to why they are passionately invested in the work and will be for the next several years. And I'll be doing this work in terms of leading the commission up until the point where I take on the new head of president-elect of the entire association, where I would have to relinquish it largely because part of what I said before, which is that you know, other folks can and will step up if you make room for them, right? And secondly, because I, I need to make sure that my bandwidth is, uh, is reasonable so that I can do a good job. I heard you say, uh, make room for them and develop them, right? Part of the role of the leader is to develop for that natural succession that yeah. can occur. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of uh, who's leading the classroom, who's in front of the class mm -hmm. really matters. To your point earlier, we're English speaking because we've been surrounded by English speaking people, right? right. Who's in that leadership role really matters. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's always fascinating to think about if I had been, if I'd grown up in a home mm. uh, where everyone was Chinese speaking, I would be speaking Chinese today. Sure. That would be very natural for me. And, and we don't think about that, how much we gain from our social interactions with those who we relate with. So Absolutely. And tell me a little bit more. Your, your father was a creative individual. He was, he was an artist. You had shared with me in a previous conversation, I love the way you put this, that uh, you got to grow up in that playground, I think is how you, you framed it. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your, your leadership role. It sounds like so much was, was family to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, my father was raised in Brooklyn, as I was, uh, which is the accent you detect if, that's, you know, if you're not a, a, a... I am. My dad grew up in Brooklyn, actually. So very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I will say that you know, he grew up in an era which is post-civil rights uh, mm. era where, where his decision to make his living as a professional artist, as men of color, were just moving into positions where they were trying to find more secure jobs to raise their families and were being allowed to do so mm -hmm. in ways that hadn't been allowed when black men weren't even allowed to to vote freely, mm. right? So mm. understand that this was he was he was he was doing something which was pretty pioneering, and he was stubborn. He saw himself as an artist. He recognized his own talent, and even if no one else supported him, um, he saw himself as that. So he went to uh, the High School of Industrial Art, which is now called the High School of Art and Design, which is the same high school that I went to. But he was he went to it when it was a different name. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He was not able to go to college because it was very difficult for men in that era, black men in that era to go to college. But so he took courses and art, art night school courses and whatnot. And he ended up going to this army and he was an army illustrator. That's actually a job category in the army where they take care of all the visuals and posters and, and whatnot for their units. Um, and ultimately 
he found a, a job as a graphic designer and, and eventually grew through the ranks as a typographer, as a, an art director. So we always had a drafting table in the center of the house. That was the hearth of the home, so to speak, that art studio. And my father being visually inclined, he also collected comics. He also collected anthologies of early peanuts, Charles Schultz. He had a library full of reference materials from obscure artists to famous artists. And that was, I had access to all of that. So my inclination was always, was also artistic. As a matter of fact, I was, as I mentioned, I'm the oldest of four or the oldest in my family. My brother was directly after me also went to the high school of art and design, also became a visual artist, in this case, a graphic designer. So the point, and, and it stopped there. My, my, my youngest two siblings uh, have no interest in the arts whatsoever. But the whole point was that we had playgrounds outside in, uh, in Brooklyn, but the art studio was also my playground. So he allowed me to use his materials, to use his uh, drafting table when he didn't have work on it. He allowed me to use his sketching papers and layout pads and markers and colored pencils. And so for me, I learned very quickly that I was a part of it, like this ancient secret society of uh, folks who were able to take words and images and make stories out of them, things that stuck with you in terms of how they informed you. And, and I got the chance to practice because there's nothing about the arts that isn't any different than any sport or any musical inclination where it's about practice. You know, you don't just know how to draw you might have inclinations in a particular eye or a particular ability to observe, but you have to practice. And so that playground was where I got a chance to drill myself um, and learn things from him in terms of how you make an image and how you make an image that's effective and how you make an image that sticks in the memory. James, I love that idea of practice. I, uh, my mother was an attorney and um, different, but uh, from a a female entering a profession. She was, you know, the first uh, female attorney in her firm to make partner, get a parking space, you know, all these, all these achievements, right? And of course, as her young teenage son, I would try to find all the lawyer jokes I could to get my mom to laugh and smile. And <laughs> one day I said, so mom, when, when are you going to stop practicing law and get it right? Uh, and, and to which I did not get a, a, a laugh or a smile, but it's that idea of practicing Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same for leadership, don't you think? It's that practicing leadership. None of us are just a, a just a leader by nature, perhaps. Talk about leadership and, and your practices. Well, actually, I like the way you put that in the sense that there's a parallel to me or maybe a, um, a linkage, maybe it's a better way of mm-hmm. putting it, between the idea of leadership and creativity, So, which is why... I personally teach them um, this idea of creative leadership. I think that there is, um, I think there's a practice that's involved in it. I think that it's similar to studio practices in the sense that you experiment. And I think that you experiment with ideas that will help move the group forward. And it's something that's done collaboratively, just like it is within the arts. There's an incredible amount of collaboration, which is why cultures exist, right? Sometimes that collaboration is intentional and sometimes it's just a matter of the exchanges that take place. But those exchanges also take place in between folks and organizations so that, for instance, you are not just following those in front of you, but you're also keeping pace with those beside you yeah. um you stay you there's an alignment that takes place that that moves everyone forward um which is also uh, a, a trait of swarms schools herds 
and then working together and working collaboratively, there are things that get done that you could not necessarily do on your own. You know, that whole notion of the, the super organism, you know, uh, where folks come together and it's not and it becomes organic. It's very, it's very natural, but yet and still uh, there's, um, there, are, there are things that uh, get accomplished by the mass, by the, by the momentum that's increased, which change organizations, which change cultures, which change nations, which change civilizations over time. And that's the thing that's a little bit different when I think about the way human beings interact. Sometimes the amount of time that takes place between, you know, the time I can be influenced by someone who I'm working with is just as important as me encountering a book or a text or an idea that someone else wrote or patented a hundred years ago and yet it can still affect me and change my momentum, change my trajectory, change where I'm going, where I'm headed. And then I can affect those who, are, who, are, who I'm working with now. And so that there's an element of time that is uh, actually wonderful where things don't get lost because they've been recorded, they've been documented, and they can still affect people 100 years later, 200 years later in meaningful ways. Yeah. So uh, that's the other the aspect that's a little bit different than um, you know, just thinking about how, you know, animals uh, affect each other by smelling chemical pheromones. It's, it's a lot. So for us, and this is where I wanted to sort of get back to, stories matter, right? Yeah. Stories are like the chemical pheromone that, a, that a, an insect sprays that, that causes a, another insect to follow after them. So for us, it's the stories that we hear and that we encounter that can change us, motivate us, change our emotional wiring and get us to sort of figure out uh, oh, yeah, this is where I want to follow. This is where I want to go, right? And then leaders tell stories themselves. Leaderships, leadership involves storytelling, and that motivates uh, those who they're relating with. Beautiful, beautiful. And I, I love that idea of influence, right? We, uh, we know as leaders that's a primary role of ours is to influence others into purposeful action. Mm-hmm. And that, that affects our, our motivations. I love the analogies you, you uh, illustrate with the more natural world as compared to the human world and leadership. Yeah. I want you to influence our listeners uh, even more. Give me your top leadership advice, your top three tips or pieces of advice that you would want our listeners to hear. Influence our listeners, please. <laughs> I like the way you put that. Uh, so I, I think I left off with one of my big, takeaways or my something that I like to share with students of, of mine in, in the leadership realm, that uh, leadership always presents a narrative. Um, mm. And sometimes leaders present a, a counter narrative to the prevailing narrative um, that may not be most beneficial or may have expired in terms of its shelf life. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and sometimes you need to present a new story that counters a story that uh, is, uh, is no longer as effective as it used to be. Yes. yes. So, so, so leadership presents a narrative. Secondly, sharing with folks or being able to cast in that narrative where we have come from as a group, where we currently are, and where it's beneficial to go next, next is, is a key aspect of that influence. Being able to share that narrative in some effective public voice with those uh, or some effective collaborative voice or organizational voice that speaks and right. that uh, communicates well. Yeah. Um, that is a, another a key aspect of leadership. And then lastly, the idea that 
just like my creativity is not your creativity, my experiences are different than yours. I've experienced creative activities that you have not experienced and likewise, vice versa. Sure. My leadership is not going to be the same or not going to look the same as your leadership. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have to do things as you did them, nor do any of us have to do things the way they've been done before. Sometimes it's important to follow those models. And sometimes it's important simply to examine the models that preceded us so that we can adapt them and allow for an evolution to take place. Oh, James, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. Really appreciated this conversation. Always a pleasure to connect with you, James. Thank you. Thank you so much once again for just to have the conversation. Uh, and I look forward to future conversations. If you Absolutely. Uh, in different kinds of venues. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Listen for more segments of Driving Leadership right here on the Get Emergent podcast, where we'll continue the conversations with a new leader every month. And come back in two weeks with Cindy Massengill and Ralph Simone, where they discuss real leadership challenges in a practical, comprehensive, and a relatable format.